Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining back here with us as we continue on in this series, Course Correction for Lent, really looking at the areas of where does Jesus want to course correct in our lives? What are the things he wants to alter? What are the things that he wants to change, to shift, or to transform? And I think this is really important, as I shared last week, that I think really in our day and age and in our world, Lent is crucial. Because in our day and age, we do not do things that are difficult. We like everything that is fun, easy, and convenient. That's what our culture really promotes. But truthfully, truthfully, and you know this too, the things that matter most in life, none of those things are like fun, easy, and convenient. If you want to think about some of the things that can give amazing life and some of the huge transformations, things like maybe working on your marriage, investing in your kids, finding freedom from an addiction, finding something of life and of purpose in your life, None of these things are quick, easy, and convenient. They are hard, but they are necessary. They are hard, but they are necessary. And Lent is like that. Lent is really like that. Lent is not quick and easy, fun and convenient. It is hard, but it is necessary, and it will make you holy. It'll actually make you living in line with God and with what he's doing in the world around you. And I think that it really matters. I think that it really matters. So I know that Lent isn't fun. It's not meant to be, really. It's meant to actually shape us and to change us in good and needed and necessary ways. And I bring all this up today. I bring all this up because like last week, today Jesus is going to say some things that are a little bit challenging. They're a little bit unsettling. They can actually make us feel a little bit uncomfortable or to disturb us in a little ways. And I know this, because as I was reading Jesus' words, I felt this. I felt this. Because what Jesus wants to talk about here with us today is really that for all of our morality, that for all of our faith and devotion to him, we can sometimes be blind to the ways that we actually stand against him. I want to say that again, because this is what we're going to unpack here today. That for all of our morality, faith, and devotion to him, we can sometimes be blind to the ways that we stand against him. But as I shared with you last week, I have this real belief that if Jesus is speaking, we should be listening. And especially if he's saying something that is hard or unsettling to us, we should not ignore this. We should not deny this. We should not dismiss this. We should actually listen to this and respond to it because we want to follow Jesus well here. That we here at Bethany, we have three values. They are grace, vulnerability, and discipleship. Right? And really for Lent, we're focusing in on this value of discipleship, of doing the hard, right, necessary things that Jesus calls us to. Of course, it's grounded in grace, and of course, it matters for us to be vulnerable with one another. But that's really what this series is about. And that's what we're going to see here today. Jesus is going to offer us to make us some course corrections in our lives. And so with that, let's jump into our text here today. We're going to pick right back up where we left off last week in Matthew 23. And today, um, we're going to do two woes of Jesus. It's a two-for-one Lent Sunday. That's what it is, okay? We're going to take a look at two things where Jesus says, woe to you, or what sorrow awaits for you. And I'm going to unpack both of them and how they relate to us here uh, today. And while you're looking up uh, Matthew 23, I want to begin. I want to begin by talking about something that you might not have expected. I want to begin by talking a little bit about blind spots. Now, blind spots are things that many of us are familiar with. They are probably especially familiar if you've ever like driven a car, right? That blind spots are things that were just outside of our vision that we can't quite see that affect us, okay? That's what blind spots are. There are things that are just outside of our vision that we can't quite see that affect us. So when you're driving, you know, you change lanes. Has anyone had this? Where all of a sudden there's a car in your blind spot. You don't see them. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that they were there, right? Or you might have been driving and realized somebody hasn't seen that you were there, right? Blind spots are these things that are just outside of our vision that impact us, right? 
But there's another idea of a blind spot that I really want to explore here today. And I want to use this to shape our understanding of the woes of Jesus that he's about to talk with. That blind spots are not always just things outside of our vision that we can't see. Sometimes what a blind spot is, is it's something in our vision that we don't see. And this is even more dangerous, that we don't even realize that we're blind to something, that we don't even realize what we are missing, that there are blind spots in our vision that we just don't see, recognize, or pay any attention to. In fact, in the uh, 1600s, a French physicist and a priest named Edmé Marriott, he discovered that we all have a blind spot in our vision. And what he demonstrated, actually, that there is obviously in our eyes an optic nerve, and where that nerve connects to the eye, there are no photoreceptors. So we literally can't see out of that spot in our eyes. And we don't normally notice this. We don't normally ever see this. We don't ever actually really pay attention to this because what our brain does, and it's doing this right now for you, even right here, right now, it fills in that blind spot for us so that we don't even see it, so that we don't even notice it, so that we don't even see that we are missing something, that we don't even notice the fact that we are missing something. And this, this is really what I want to talk about today, how there are sometimes things in our vision that we don't even see or notice that we are missing. This French physicist and priest who first demonstrated this, what he would do in the French court is he would take a coin and he would make it literally disappear in front of someone's eyes. You can do this today, actually. Just go online and there are lots of things and they'll have you stare at a letter and all of a sudden the letter will be gone, but you don't see a blank space. Your brain fills it in. This is what I want to explore today, how we can actually be blind to things that are right in front of us, but not even notice it, not even see it, not even notice that something is missing. And this is an important concept for us in the next two woes. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say to the Pharisees, you are missing the point and you're not even seeing what is right in front of you. That they are blind to something in their vision and it is impacting them and it is affecting them and it's obscuring them from being actually in the way of what God is doing. That they actually end up uh, blocking and becoming an obstacle to what God is doing and they don't even see it. So with that kind of understanding of blind spots, let's dive into the two uh, woes that we read today. Jesus says, woe to you, or what sorrow awaits you, religious law, um, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, that's a theme, hypocrites, they, don't, they say things that they don't follow through. He says this, for you cross the land and sea to make uh, one convert, and then you turn that person into a child of hell that you yourselves are. Blind guides, he says, blind guides. What sorrow awaits for you, or this is the second woe, woe to you. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that, is the, uh, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind? For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And when you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing on it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. And there's a lot going on here and I want to unpack this here for us today. Starting with the first woe and trying to understand some of the culture and the second woe and understanding the culture and how the two relate and actually tie together for us. So I want to unpack this first woe where Jesus says this, with sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross the land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. 
So what was happening way back then was that the Pharisees were evangelists. Really, they wanted to share the good news of how they saw the world working with those around them. So they were evangelists, they were missionaries. There's debates about how much they did this, but there is um, the reality that this was a part of what they did. But the larger point um, kind of remains that what the Pharisees would do is they would go to people and they would say, this is how you follow God. This is the right way to follow God because everybody believes that their way is the right way, correct? Right? Like that's what happens, right? Everybody believes their way is the right way. So the Pharisees were going around and seeking to convert people into their way of living, into their system of living, into how they saw the world functioning. And here Jesus critiques the Pharisees, but notice what he critiques. He does not critique the Pharisees like religious fervor. He does not critique their passion. He does not critique their willingness to go. What he critiques is the results of their actions. What he critiques is the results of their actions. He says this, for you cross land and sea to make one convert. He doesn't, convert, he doesn't critique that. Listen to this. And then he says this, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Can you believe this is Jesus speaking? This is harsh, isn't it? Listen to what he says, that you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. And what Jesus here is critiquing, he is critiquing the results of the Pharisees' religious actions. That any convert they make is going to be twice as bad as they are. That any convert they make, the fruit of their results, the fruit of their actions, is actually for people to be twice as bad as they are. Jesus says that he, uh, they create the person into twice a child of hell as you yourselves are. I wanna comment here a little bit about what Jesus means by the word hell in this passage, because it's really important for us to understand what's happening here and how Jesus is using this term in this specific instance. Now, the Bible speaks about hell as a place uh, that you go after you die, but here Jesus is actually using this term hell in a very specific way and not as a destination that you go to, but as a place that shapes you today. I want to be clear with that, that Jesus here in this passage, although the Bible speaks other and other places, but here right now, Jesus is not speaking of hell as a place that you go to a destination, but as a place that shapes how you're acting here today. And you can pick up on this really easily, even in English, without knowing some of the kind of Hebrew and Greek and all of that, but we'll get into it. Because Jesus says this, he says, you are a child of hell. That's what he says, twice a child of hell you yourselves are. He doesn't say that you are going to go to hell. He says, actually, you are a child of hell, that this is the space that is animating you, that you're coming from that place. So I want to explain what he means by this when he calls someone a child of hell or a son or daughter of hell. The word translated in hell here in Greek is the word Gehenna. And what it literally means to in Greek, actually, and in Hebrew, there's some uh, etymology of it. It actually is referring to a literal place, like a place on a map. He is saying you are a son of, like you can name your town around here, whatever it is, right? That's what he's actually saying. And you can read about this more in multiple places in the Bible, but the word translated Greek in Geh as Gehenna, but what it means is the Valley of Hinnom. And this is a physical ravine actually outside of Jerusalem. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 23.10 or 2 Chronicles 28.3. This is what this word means. In this place, Gehenna, hell, the Valley of Hinnom, it actually becomes a place that is associated with pagan rites, rituals, and all of that sort of thing. And in fact, if you read in 2 Kings 23, it gets associated actually with death and corruption and all that is wrong in the world. There is a good King Josiah in 2 Kings and he makes it the dumping ground for all this garbage, filth, and actually corpses and bodies of criminals. 
So Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, becomes known then as this place in Jesus' day and age. It starts to take on this more metaphorical reality. It becomes known as a place that is so anti-God that you used it as a picture for all that was against God. It became a place known for garbage, filth, you know, corpses, death, decay, all of that. And so what Jesus is saying here when he calls them a son or a, a child of hell, what he is saying is he's using all of this imagery of Gehenna and of hell. And he's saying that the Pharisees become a son of a place that is anti-God. That's what he's talking about. Saying that they are sons of a place that is anti-God. And that when they go and convert someone, that they actually make them twice a son of anti-God movements. That's what's happening here in this passage. Jesus isn't so much talking about hell as a destination, although the Bible does talk about that in other places. He's talking about here, how this becomes an animating center of their life, that they become actually attached to a place that is anti-God. That's what's going on here. So Jesus says to the Pharisees that they're really blind for the fact that for all of their religious fervor, for all of their love of God, for all of their action and their effort, they actually travel over land and sea only to make them twice as likely as to get in the way of God. That's what this woe is about. That the Pharisees have a false idea of God. And the more zealously you pursue a false idea of God, the worse it is. That's what's going on here. The more zealously you pursue a false idea of God, the worse it is actually. And the Pharisees are blind to it and they don't see it. The Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the Anglican Church, um, William Temple, once said this. He said, if you have a false idea of God, the more religious you are, the worse it is for you. It were better for you to be an atheist. What he's getting at is that if your idea of God is off and you pursue that so strongly, you actually end up really far away from him. And that's what's happening here with the Pharisees. They thought they were actually moving towards God, but really they're moving away from God. They're going actually out of Gehenna, not towards the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here in this passage. And then Jesus gets really specific and he gives them some examples of how the Pharisees are totally missing the point, of how they are actually creating people that are unlikely to enter into the kingdom of God, that are animated by a different spirit than the spirit of the kingdom of God. He says this, blind guides, what sorrow awaits for you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is binding, but to swear by the gifts of the altar is not binding? How blind? For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and everything on it. When you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God and who sits on the throne. And here, here's essentially what's going on here in this passage. That back in that day and age, that people would swear an oath as a way to guarantee they would follow through on something, right? That they would swear an oath, they would make a promise. And to kind of have more oomph to the promise or to the oath, they would almost like get God to co-sign on it. That's kind of what's going on here. So they would swear by like the altar. They would swear by the temple, like by the temple, I will pay you back this sheep, right? Or whatever it is. Um, that's what was going on in that day and age. But then what got really weird and funny is that the Pharisees got into discussing that there were some promises, there were some oaths, there were some guarantees you would make, and some of these were binding and some of them weren't. Which if this sounds ridiculous to you, it is, okay? Because if you make a promise, it should just be binding. It should just be true. You shouldn't actually be able to get out of it. But what was happening in that day and age was people would swear by different things. So if someone said to you, you know, buy the temple, I will pay you back the sheep, 
The Pharisees said that wasn't binding, actually. You didn't have to pay back the sheep. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, so you said, by the gold in the temple, I will pay you back the sheep, then you had to. Obviously, this gets a little bit ridiculous, that people who follow God should just let their yes be yes and their no be no. They should just be people who are honest and act with integrity. There shouldn't be binding promises and non-binding promises. All promises are binding. But the Pharisees get into all of this weird ritual and or, um, legalism and restrictions around it, and it becomes really confusing and it becomes very odd. And Jesus just cuts to the heart of it and says, you're actually blind. You're missing the point. You're missing the total point. Your promises should just be true. That's what's going on. Jesus is using this example of how the Pharisees teach about promises and guarantees as an example of how they are totally missing the point and not even seeing it. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the rabbis fought the abuses of oaths and vows among the unlearned masses, but the way they fought them was by differentiating between what was binding and what was not. In that sense, wittingly or unwittingly, they actually encouraged evasive oaths and therefore lying. Jesus cut through these complexities, insisting just that the people must tell the truth. So Jesus says, you blind guides multiple times in this passage because the Pharisees are just missing the point. They are not speaking truth, actually. They're making, you know, kind of false promises. And then on top of that, they're making people as sons and daughters of hell or of things that are anti-God. And I think that's what these two woes are really about. They're really about how we can twist the truth and not see it. They're really about how sometimes we can be blind to things and not realize how we are missing the point. That there are sometimes things in our lives, right in our vision, and we just don't even see how off course they are. Because let's remember, let's remember from last week, the Pharisees, the Pharisees are not bad people. The Pharisees are not wrong people. The Pharisees are actually deeply devoted to God kind of people. That's who they are. They want to see people follow God, but they are actually really blind to the ways in which their actions actually are opposing the way of God, which ways is a really important and a challenging point, similar to last week. It's an important challenging point that you can be passionate, deeply moral, deeply religious, full of zeal for God, and blind to how you are opposing God. I say that again. That you can be passionate, deeply moral, religious, full of zeal for God, and blind to how you are actually opposing God. I think, I think that as Christians, we should pause here. We should really pause here. Because this is in some ways a really actually disturbing and unsettling reality for us. That because of all of our religious convictions, our certainty and our passion, that we could still actually be wrong, just like the Pharisees were wrong. And I know, I know we don't like to think about that. I know that's something we don't often spend a lot of time reflecting on in Christianity, of how we might be wrong. But I actually think that it's incumbent upon us to think about that, to wrestle with that, to really ask Jesus, are there areas that we are blind and don't even know it? Are there areas that we are totally missing the point and not even seeing it? Are there some actions that are actually creating hell, like he says, that we aren't even seeing? We should ask Jesus that question of, are we missing it? Because follow with me. I do not believe that God included this passage in our scriptures, in our Bibles, just to tell us of how the Pharisees missed the point. I think it was included to remind us of how we can miss the point and to actually challenge us to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to say, are there areas we need to course correct? Because if it was possible for the Pharisees to miss the point, it is also possible for us to miss the point too. And if, if this fact 
that our religious fervor and passion is no guarantee that we are actually following God well, if this makes you uncomfortable, like it should, it should. It should, it makes me uncomfortable. It should cause us to ask those deep questions of are we blind and do not see it? Because what I also know, what I also know looking not only at the Pharisees, but what I also know looking at history is that there have been many times, many times that Christians have been full of passion, that they feel they're standing on the right side of scripture, that they have tradition and Bible verses behind them, and that they have been totally wrong, that they have totally missed the point that they have been blind to how they were actually creating hell in and around them. I want to give you a few examples of this because I think it's important for us to realize that just because we are following God does not mean, does not mean that we are actually not in some ways opposing the will of God because it's possible for the Pharisees and it's possible for us and it's happened in history. So let me give you a few examples of how this idea that we can be blind to God is still a part of our world in our day and age and a part of our lives. I'm gonna give you some examples from history. Okay? I wanna give you one beginning from a few generations ago. A number of years ago, there was a huge debate actually in North America. And like most debates that's around theology and people and that sort of thing, things end up into camps. Um, and they end up often very divided and very polarized. And like many things, there was kind of the liberal camp and there was the conservative camp in this debate. Okay? And then the Christian side had arguments like this actually in the debate the Christian conservative side. They would things like, say things like, we are standing up for biblical truth. They were saying things like, if the Bible says it, we just need to believe it. They were saying things like, we cannot change what the Bible says. We just need to accept it as our authority. They were saying things like, it is a slippery soap to ever lose um, the literal truth of scripture. And these people who are on the conservative, fundamentalist, Christian side, called everybody on the liberal side, like heretics, and that they were giving up on the Bible and that they were not following it. And you want to know what those conservative Christians were arguing for? They were arguing for slavery, for slavery. They were arguing for the practice of slavery and they were completely blind to how the fact that that was not in the will of God whatsoever. And they ended up on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of God's will because they were blind to the fact for what they are arguing that it is possible to be certain. It is possible to have scripture verses. It is possible to think you're moving in the right way and to actually be opposed to the will of God because there should be no debate on this. Slavery is evil and wrong, but there are Christians who missed it. There are Christians who argued from scripture and tradition and all sorts of things and they missed it because it is possible to be blind to something and to not even know it. So that's an example from a few generations ago, or even like many, many more generations ago, another example of where Christians totally missed it and were blind to it was the Crusades. Was the Crusades. That somehow they thought it was okay to kill people in Jesus' name as a way to follow him. But that is just obviously wrong. You should not kill people in the name of Jesus. Like that should be just radically clear. And it is to us now, but it wasn't back then that there was something in their vision and they couldn't even see it. They couldn't see how they were blind to it. Or to give you a more recent example, of uh, in the past um, number of years here in both Canada um, and historically here in Canada, that one of the areas where the church has totally missed the point and has been blind is to our treatment of indigenous people, both historically and today. That when you look about what the church was doing, and yes, it was sponsored by the state and the government, but when you look at what the church was doing, how it was ripping indigenous children away from families, taking them away actually from their culture, from their language, from their heritage. And then when you start to see how uh, the church placed them in residential schools, or even in the 60s scoop, when children were taken, they were often placed in Christian families, that there was massive abuse, neglect, malnutrition and disease, so much so that many children even died. This is why today, today, 
today. We are just beginning to reckon with this reality. Because to date, there is more than 1,800 unmarked graves that have been found at residential schools. More than 1,800. 1,800. And the church was a part of this. The church was an actor in this. Christians were a part of this, and we were blind to how it was sinful and wrong and evil, and we didn't even see it. And so much so that there are still Christians here today who deny any need for reconciliation or for repentance. This is blindness that we can see that is within our churches and within the history of Canada and North America, and it's still continuing today. Or to give you another more modern day example, to give you a more modern day example, there are churches that right now can be growing really quickly. They can be doing tons of baptism and preaching and all of that, but at their root, they are actually based on anger and judgment and condemnation. So much so, so much so that today there's an entire movement of people that are called ex-evangelicals who have actually said that these churches just create harm and trauma and damage, and people didn't see it. There's actually podcasts dedicated to the rise and fall of these churches that are showing how they were blind to the impact of what they were doing. So I raise all of this. I raise all of this just to try to help us to realize the fact that it's not only the Pharisees who can be blind and miss the point. It can be us today. It's not only the Pharisees who can be blind and miss the point, it can be us today. That when we look through history, we have seen this, that the church has missed the point with the Crusades. The church has missed the point with slavery and how we treat indigenous people. The church has missed the point. The question then for us is, are we missing it now? Are we missing it now? Are there areas that Jesus wants to course correct in your life and in mine? Because I am not convinced that I'm so perfect and put together that Jesus does not have an area to correct in my life. I think it's true for yours as well that it is possible, it is possible to be deeply religious and to actually be fervor, have a fervor for faith, but to still actually miss the point. So that's my main point today. My main point is a difficult one, and I know, I know. But we believe in doing the hard right things here. We believe in doing the hard right things. My main point is just this, that you can be blind and not know it. I think that's what this passage is about. You can be blind and not know it. That Jesus says to the Pharisees, with sorrow awaits you. Teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you cross the land and sea to make one convert. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. He says, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? Blind fools. How blind, how blind, how blind, how blind. And if today, if today when I say, those words that we can be blind and not know it. If your gut instinct is, I'm not blind. If your gut instinct is, no, no, I follow the rules. I'm on the right side of everything. If your gut instinct is to resist this message from Jesus, if today when I bring this up, you're like, no, this doesn't relate to me. I want to say this with all gentleness, but also directness. But that response of I'm right, I can't be wrong. There must be no blindness in me is the exact same response that the Pharisees had. And in this passage, and in this passage, we don't want to live like the Pharisees. We want to live like Jesus. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us here today? What does this mean for us practically? Because I know this is challenging. But as I said, Lent is meant to be challenging. It's not meant to be fun and easy. It's actually meant to be something that makes us holy. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, the first thing I want to say is just this. And this may not sound deep, but it really is, okay? The truth is, is that you can be blind and not know it. And the truth is also this, that you don't know what you don't know. I want to say that again. I know that doesn't sound very deep, but it actually really is, okay? That you don't know what you don't know. 
that we don't know where we are blind, that we don't know where we might be missing the will of God, that we don't know where we might be missing the point, that like those blind spots in our eyes that we carry around with us all the time, but we never actually see or notice really that we can be blind to the ways we are actually missing the point. And what we know for sure is that there are lots of really holy, certain, and people who thought they were righteous, but actually stood in the way of God, right? Whether we're talking about the slavery, the crusades, or whatever. But I also know, and this is the scary part, I also know that this has happened for me personally. I also know this has happened for me personally. I always believe that it's important to be honest with you. I always seek to be as most honest and vulnerable as I can with you. And what I know is when I've been sitting with this passage, the part that most unsettles or disturbs or is uncomfortable for me is that I know that I have acted in this way without a shadow of a doubt. That what I know is as I've looked back on teachings I gave 15 years ago, right? Some advice that I gave maybe 20 years ago as a pastor. I've almost been pastoring for 20 years now, right? That as I look back on some of those early things that I would have said, taught, or did, I know without a shadow of a doubt today, I know without a shadow of a doubt today that those things were wrong. They were not in the way of God. They were not helpful. They were not actually the right things whatsoever. The problem is, the problem is, is that I know way back then, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was giving the right advice. I thought I was teaching the right things, but I didn't know. And I'm not saying everything I taught was wrong. I just know that there are definitely sermons that I preached 15 years ago that I would never preach today because God has convicted me of that. God has actually uh, changed me of that. God has challenged me of some of the things that I've said, right? But the problem is, is that I know way back then I thought I was right. So the challenge is, the challenge is, is what am I going to look back on today in 20 years and be like, how did I miss it? How did I miss it? How did I miss it? Because what we know what we know is that the Spirit does convict and it does lead and he does continue to change us. Then the only reason that we know now that like slavery is wrong and that the Crusades are wrong is because the Holy Spirit did a work within the church. But it also means that there might be things that we are blind to today. So what does this mean for us then? Knowing that we can miss the point. It doesn't mean we just throw up our hands in the air and say, well, we should teach nothing. Well, we should do nothing. Well, we can't you know, be sure of anything. No, no, no. Here's what I think. Here's what I think, and here's what I deeply believe. That if it is true that we can be blind and not know it, and it is true because of what we've seen in this passage, what we've seen historically, and what I know personally, right? If it's true that we can be blind and not know it, the answer is not to throw our hands up in the air and say, we will do nothing. The answer is to listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's the answer. That's the answer, that we listen to his voice. We do not then throw up our hands in the air and say, well, I don't know what I should do. No, we listen to the voice of Jesus who wants to correct your life and mine to make sure that we actually live according to his ways. Jesus will be really clear, and we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Jesus is really clear in the woes, actually, that his heart is for the Pharisees. He actually loves them. He actually wants to gather them like a hen. That's what he says at the end of this passage. And so here Jesus has a desire to lead the Pharisees. I think the same desire is happening today, that Jesus wants to lead us, that he wants to guide us, that he wants to make sure that we aren't in the way of his kingdom, but fully functioning in his kingdom. So the way that we actually apply this, the way we apply this is to not listen to my voice, it's to listen to the voice of Jesus. That's what we need. We need a willingness. We need a willingness to just sit and listen to his voice, to ask him the question, what would you course correct in our lives? Where are we missing the point? Where might I be blind, Lord, and not even know it? So what's my challenge here for us today? My challenge really is just this. My challenge is simple. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to pray once a day. But you put it like a reminder in your phone, whatever it may be, to pray once a day to Jesus. Reveal my blind spots, Jesus. 
That's all I'm going to invite you to do, is to pray once a day. Jesus, would you reveal my blind spots? Jesus, would you reveal my blind spots? Jesus, would you reveal my blind spots? Would you reveal the areas where I'm missing the point? Because I know for me that as I've looked back in my life with Jesus, he has done that consistently, and I know I need that today. This is not an easy message, but it is a necessary one. So I want to invite you to just pray that prayer. Jesus, would you reveal my blind spots to sit with him and to listen to him? Because the way that we actually are able to follow him, the way we start to learn about where we are missing the point is for Jesus to speak that into us. The question is, the question is, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to listen to the voice of Jesus? And what might he say? Honestly, I, I don't know exactly all that he might say in your life. Maybe he'll tell you, Maybe he'll tell you that that person that you really hate, you need to give up that grudge. Maybe he'll tell you you need to offer forgiveness to this person. Maybe he'll tell you that rule keeping you're doing, that legalism with your spouse or with your kids, like it isn't working. Maybe he'll tell you that for all your talk of righteousness and for standing up for the truth, really it's just anger and condemnation. Maybe what he'll tell you, maybe what he'll tell you is that problem you keep saying is just a problem. It isn't a problem, it's actually an addiction and you need to name that and to confess that and to find help for it. Maybe... Maybe he'll say that this group that you think it's okay to shun isn't okay. Maybe what he'll reveal to you is that you've interpreted this passage or that wrong or whatever it may be. I don't know what he might reveal to you, but I know that if we are ever going to follow Jesus correctly, it happens with him revealing to us what we need to change. That's what Jesus is seeking to do with the Pharisees. He wants to reveal to them where they are missing the point. He says, how foolish is it to be talking about which oaths are binding and which oaths aren't. He says, just tell the truth. That's what he wants to get at. He wants to course correct their lives so it actually leads into the kingdom. We need the same thing. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you really directly to spend time, to spend time every day this week just praying that prayer, listening to Jesus, to not shy away from this, to not ignore it, to not deny, diminish, or dismiss this, but to really say to Jesus, Jesus, what areas of blind spots do I have in my life? What do I need to change? What would you have me do? And then I want to challenge you to take that next step. So for me, this is really what Lent is about. It's about us sitting with Jesus and hearing his words of course correction. And so I want to invite you and challenge you to do that this week. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here today? God, I ask. I ask as we seek to follow you. Will we have the courage to listen? God, I pray. Will we not be so arrogant and so certain that we don't have areas of blindness within us that need to be changed? I pray, God, would you reveal those to us? Would we hear you? And then would we take steps towards you? I pray, God, would we be able to sit with you each and every day this week? Might we continue, Lord, to follow you with faithfulness and with courage, but might we have the courage to truly listen to your voice and to respond as needed and as necessary? And so, God, I pray for each and every one of us who is hearing this. Would you speak to us? Would we hear your voice? And would we respond with faithfulness? I pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.